the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and Wireworld Pro Audio. Now from the Nowcast Network Studios, here's Mike. Hey, welcome to the Audio Nowcast. My name is Mike Rodriguez. And before we get going, let me introduce the guys. Starting with Mr. Brandon Burnside. Brandon. What's up, Mike? What's up, guys? Good to see everybody. Good to see you. Hey, I got to tell the funny story about Brandon uh, calling me up last week. Hey, what time's the podcast? And I had to go, uh, there is no podcast. <laughs> I was looking at the email from the previous week. I had yeah, lost complete track of what day it was. I know. That's why we didn't see you last time. Uh, followed by Mr. Scott Gershon. Hey, Scott. Okay. Scott, we got to talk about those panels behind you. That looks pretty spiffy there, brother. Pretty spiffy. And next to him, a man who just needs a little bit more energy all the time, Mr. Nick Peck. Hello, Mike. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Good to see you all. And finally, the Iron Man of the Audio Nowcast. That, and he's just, I'm speechless. He's looking so good behind that keyboard, Mr. Rob Arbiter. Hello, Mike. Hello, everyone. Good to see everybody. Wow, not does he look good, he sounds good too. Mm. Rob. Got that RE20 thing going, you know? I turned over a whole new leaf this week. I rotated the camera, basically. <laughs> yeah, but I'm so glad, like, the keyboard that you're in front of is like a real keyboard. Like, a real keyboard. That's oh, actually pretty cool. It's a real keyboard. It's the heaviest keyboard I have ever been associated with. Do you know what it is? Does anybody yeah, know? I do. I know what it is. Uh, a, Kurzweil, a Kurzweil K250. Nope. I, oh. I no, it's not that. It's almost that heavy, though. No, I know exactly what it is because a I Roland had, V piano. I had envy for the longest time. This is <laughs> this is like a dream keyboard. As a matter of fact, I got a light version of that keyboard. I'll give you a hint. If I flip up the touch screen, it gets in the way. <laughs> it's a Korg Oasis. Yes, it is an eighty-eight key, eighty-eight pound keyboard. Uh, yeah. Oh, hey. Yeah. And I couldn't. I couldn't get that one, so I got a Korg M three, which is like a earlier baby version of the oasis well the trick is to get it and then hold on to it for a thousand years and then it ends up being that <laughs> which by the way that's a really good sounding keyboard that that whole the m3 oasis when they kind of broke away from that that old trinity triton engine you know it started doing some really interesting things i just you had some really good stuff there yeah and then once they got into the chronos i i kind of lost track of that that whole that whole lineage because so many well, other great things are coming out i think we have to a kill, lot of, oh, go on rob sorry i was just gonna say if we have to kill time i'll give us a little musical interlude oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, we need a little musical interlude <laughs> you need okay. to play you need to play a little something well i'll turn it on it's not on yet give it i'll start it now by the end of the podcast it'll boot <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. You know what? This is pretty uh, appropriate because we're going to be talking about sound because I've been doing a, uh, and when I say sound on a bunch of different levels, and that's the way I'm just going to put sound. Um, I've been doing some research into some vintage gear. I've been doing some research into some Eurorack and uh, I've been doing some research and I was talking with Brandon actually on sound design because I've been just watching like everybody else, just all kinds of movies and all kinds of Netflix and things like that. And you start really noticing sound designs and trends and things like that. So we have a, we're going to be talking about sound. The first thing though I'm going to start off with is um, first of all, like this is almost, it's our 14th show since the whole COVID thing uh, went down. And what's hilarious is we've done more shows uh, in this, these past couple of months than we did in the previous two years. <laughs> It's like, oh my goodness. And I don't know about you guys, but I'm I'm just, man, I, I can't wait for some sense of normal. I've been talking with some friends in Nashville and um, it's just, you know, talk about nobody knowing what's going to be happening. It's so weird. It's And I think, you know, we're all kind of living through what we're living through right now, but it's the fact of not knowing what's coming down the pipe is, is it's just getting, it's just getting kind of crazy. Um, I think that there's a notion there, I mean, because, of course, we're all feeling a great deal of anxiety about this. And in fact, it turns out that a third of American adults are now self-identifying as, as uh, suffering from some form of anxiety or depression as a result of this kind of thing. So, for sure. Um, for, you know, makes sense. The, the, the thing that has helped me a little bit with this, Mike, um, has been to try my best to let go and to realize that I can't actually control this situation. No, There's I, nothing that I can do. And that helps like one way for thin 
slice. No, it's so true. I, the other thing that I that I've done is when you feel anxious, is you kind of like I, you know I tell people you kind of throw yourself into creativity and doing crazy things and doing research on you know your racks and modules. The other thing I did is I've been I've been getting this little guy working, Ooh. man. This is that little pocket PC thing that I was telling you about. It's tiny. This thing is like tiny. It reminds me of the old, remember the old Sharp, um, those old Sharp uh, data planners? And you, and you got Pro Tools working in it? No, this is FL Studio. This is, yeah. a, and it, and it, this is the demo. Right, this is one of the demos. It has samples and it has all kinds of stuff. And it runs, which is amazing i gotta i gotta tell you man fl studio i gotta give those guys props man they they there's not a computer i've put that on that it hasn't run. like if i have something that that needs to like i want something creative i use fl studio and i'll put it on like i've put it on surface tablets i put it on all kinds of stuff and it it works you know it doesn't it's not a resource hog i mean i'm sure it can be but so far it's it's played nice anyway so uh i just want to I've been kind of dinking with that, but I want to start off with is I've been doing some, <laughs> I've been working on my sound. Like I, I got sick of my sound. So I'm like, okay, maybe I need to do something. And I started looking at the Euro rack and I don't know if how many guys here have you even glanced at a Euro rack, maybe wanting to put together a Euro rack. First of all, it's not cheap, right, Nick? I mean, it's no. not inexpensive. Oh, I have all. well over 10 grand into my Euro rack rig. No I mean, doubt. I, I saw like some of the uh, the actual racks for Euro racks. I was started. You got to start there because you need a rack, right? Yeah, you need power and a rack to be able to connect it to yeah, before and you some even the, get anything. And some of the cool ones that I saw from like Pittsburgh, you know, you're, you're talking eight hundred bucks just for the case. That's <laughs> not even, for, you know. And the really nice ones are like twelve hundred bucks. And then I saw one that had was a road case and it was like six hundred and fifty dollars. And then so you start there, right? And then you go into the modules. And so the modules, think about your, uh, the modules as a slice of your synthesizer. So you have separate uh, you know, oscillators and filters and all that kind of stuff. And you know, some of the cooler ones were, were okay, but there's a lot of garbage out there. I mean, there's, there's some Eurorack modules that don't sound that great. You know? I mean, they, they, it's just not that good. I, I mean, after I started putting all this stuff together, I was thinking, you know, I can just boot up my computer <laughs> and, and do Reason or do some of the virtual racks that are out there and get a better tone um, on some stuff. Not, not, not all of them. I'm not going to throw your rack under the bus or anything. But there's, you know, you got to be a certain mindset and you got to come from a certain place to do your rack. You really do. You have to be dedicated to the minutia of literally plugging from your oscillator into your filter, into your uh, amp, into your, you know, it's a certain mindset. And, and I just wanted to mention this because I was talking to somebody and, and actually somebody wrote me from uh, one of our listeners about your rack and I didn't know a lot about him. So I just, um, there's a couple of really good websites that I referred him to, but I just want people to be careful. If they think they're going to go into a Eurorack setup and get this amazing ambient sounding coolness right off the bat, it's just not that way. You kind of have to work for it, right? I mean, it's monophonic for one thing. It's not even polyphonic. It's just, you're talking about monophonic. I mean, Nick, you can build up on this. I sure can. Um, there, I mean, you, you, you left so many things there. I'm not exactly sure where to start, but I think I'll start at the beginning. Well, I just wanted to give that. a really quick overview. Sure. So let me start and I'll try to, I'll try to do this fairly quickly. So Eurorack is simply the latest in, um, a series of synthesizer types that go all the way back to the sixties and that's modular synthesizers. So Moog and Serge and Buchla started with modular synthesizers in the late 60s, moving through the 70s. And it was exactly the idea that it was this building block of sound thing, right? So you would have a single module that you would buy or you would build and you would put it in and it would have, you know, some subset of functions that you need in what you would think of as a normal synthesizer today. So there would be an oscillator and there would be a filter, as you said, and then there would be envelope generators and, uh, and um, uh, voltage controlled amplifiers and all sorts of triggers and sequencers and all of those kinds of things. And it, when, when this stuff started out, you would sort of buy into a 
you would sort of buy into a brand, right? So you would have a big Buchla modular system or you would have a big Moog system. Um, and the neat thing about Eurorec, what ended up happening was that um, all of the, the problem with all of that, it was that it was, it was precipitously expensive. I grew up learning on modulars and I loved them, but I couldn't afford them. So, you know, I went the, the way of keyboards, right? In the mid nineties, a German fellow named Dieter Depfer um, was, came up with the idea of creating a new standard for um, modular synthesizers that had a very fixed size, in this case, 3U is what they call it. So it's about three-fifths of the size of a, mod, of a Moog modular module. And it would have a standardized pinout, and that pinout would require plus and minus 12 volts, and then plus 5 volts if there are any digital things, right? So, every, and he published this. He said, all right, this is a standard. I'm putting this out there. Anyone who wants to do this, go. And he started this company, and they created an enormous range of, uh, of Eurorack modules, which allow you to be able to do any number of incredible things at a very reasonable price point. Okay, they're all analog for the most part, and they were 100 bucks, 60 bucks, 200 bucks. You know, that's how much one of these little things were. So then what ended up happening was that a lot of other people saw that Eurorack was catching on. And so we ended up having a whole series of you know, sort of early adopter manufacturers, Make Noise and IntelliGel and a number of others. And um, tangentially, for anyone who's interested in finding out more about the actual history of Eurorack, check out the movie I Dream of Wires, which you can find out about on the, on the internet. And it's a wonderful um, documentary about modular synths. Anyway, so you ended up having these people, sorry, Mike, I told you this is the quick version. You had a bunch of people who made a bunch of these different types of modules which were interesting and which were great. But then as the market expanded, lots of other people said, hey, I can do that. I can do that too. And that's where we get to what you were saying about there being some modules that don't sound great and that you know, aren't all that scintillating or interesting. Okay, really quick. That was a perfect example of why Nick loves modular synthesis. <laughs> because in the time that he took to explain the history of Eurorack, that's about half the amount of time you would need to get your first patch <laughs> on, on just three modules. <laughs> but it teaches no, it is, it is. It really it does. It teaches you the building blocks that all of these other keyboards 100%. are built on. 100%. And, and, and I'm not, look, I am not against Eurorack at all. I just want people to realize when you go into Eurorack, you kind of have to be a certain, just you, you, you before you spend your five grand to get into this whole game, you just got to make sure you're going to get out of it what you, what you put into it and what, you, you know, what your expectations are. Because seriously, if you're going to spend all this money and then you start patching and all you're hearing is a sine wave and then you filter it and stuff like that. I mean, I've heard some really cool stuff and some of the ambient stuff that's done on Eurorack is amazing. It really is. When you actually hear them and they're, 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 with the oscillators and then with the step sequencing and then with the, you know, the uh, outboard effects and then uh, opening and closing the resonance on, on some of the filtering and things like that. Like some really cool stuff is happening. Um, but you got to know it's, it's not going to be quick and, and you just have to, I'm just, you know, you have to have a certain mindset before you go into Eurorack or else you're going to be severely disappointed. Well, let me jump in and say something here because <laughs> I didn't say enough already. <laughs> if you're interested in exploring more about modular synthesis and not paying a penny, go download the VCV rack software, yes. which is available on Mac, PC, I think even Linux. And it is the building blocks of Eurorack. You can download all these modules. They cost nothing. And you take virtual cables and you connect them together and you can say, wow, this is for me or no, this isn't for me. And then bear in mind that hardware version is a lot more fun because you're using your hands and your fingers and it's a much more creative and expressive kind of approach, but it's the same basic idea. All right. Well, I just wanted to do that because like I said, I got some people that, that uh, sent me an email and I wanted to explain a little bit about the commitment that you have to Eurorack. So along the way, I'm looking at Eurorack and I start looking at some of the vintage stuff. And I remember last week we talked about um, vintage uh, synths and things like that. And, and I started looking up some of these vintage keyboards that I owned or that I knew about or that I know people who have. And one thing that I came across was a Jupiter 8 on Reverb <gasps> that was selling for $15,000. $15,000. Now, look, Jupiter 8, it's a cool keyboard, 
but it's not fifteen thousand dollars cool. I mean, it has an old sound. It's it it has its Jupiter sound. I'm not gonna say it's a bad sound, but it's it's that Jupiter sound, and there's all those controls, and it's it's a cool. Hey, keyboard. it's time to sell the Jupiter right then. <laughs> but but seriously, fifteen thousand dollars for a for a Jupiter eight. That's pretty crazy. It's it's ridiculous. And then I started looking down down the memory lane, and I started listening to some of the stuff. Look, I'm a big fan. I learned on a Juno, but like the Juno wasn't the best sounding keyboard no. that was out there. And there's all this cachet for both of them. A Juno yes. 106 is like fifteen hundred dollars. Yeah. Which is- Stupid. It's just stupid. It's ridiculous. And I just want like, you know, I don't want to, sometimes we glamorize like all this vintage gear when we put it on a pedestal, but there's a reason why it's vintage. It's because that was back then and things move forward. You know, you compare that to what you can do with some of the sense nowadays. It's like, I don't know. I, I just, I, the only, I, the only thing is if you have a modular synth and you start letting the step sequencer go and you start, you know, this is not if you're trying to like be an on, on demand composer with a deadline, but exactly right. Just sit there and you just sort of let your mind wander and let the outboard effects start looping around and let the steps we sequencer start looping around. It gets really trippy and you can come up with some really cool stuff that you would never come up with any other time, but it's not the kind of thing you do with a deadline. Like that's, that's begging for trouble. It's true. It's not, I agree, but, but also some of the sound of the old stuff wasn't that great. It, it really wasn't. It was, it, it, it depends on the thing, Mike. A mini Moog is a mini Moog and that will no, always be a mini Moog and it will I, always sound incredible. hundred percent. I'm not, I, and that maybe I'm doing a blanket. I don't mean to do such a blanket statement, but there's a lot of gear that we romanticize that isn't as good as we remember. You know, it really, it really isn't. I go to YouTube and start playing, you know, some of the, you know, the Juno stuff that's out there or some of the old stuff, even some of like the Poly 61. How many of you guys are in the Poly, was it the 61 or 60? Poly 61. Yeah, it's a Poly 61. Yeah. Um, I mean, how thin does that thing sound? But it was cheap synthesizer at the time. No, I know. That that was like a bargain basement synthesizer. Like the Poly 800. Fives were five, six thousand dollars. A Jupiter six was $6,000. So the day in those days, I remember I have a Jupiter 6 and I was at music school and I was fantasizing about owning one. But it was $6,000 and so my girlfriend, who's now my wife, got me this tag that said Jupiter 6 on it because that's about all I could afford. Eventually, I ended up getting one. But um, yeah, those prices, I remember... Profit five, Jupiter eights and sixes. They were all five, six thousand bucks a pop chroma. You know. Yeah. Scott, you brought up a great point that I that I want to bring up. What what back in the day when you guys were starting, was there any keyboard that you were jonesing for that like you just like you really wanted that keyboard? Like that was that was your 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 keyboard above all keyboards. Uh start with you, Nick. What was what was your Jones and keyboard? Uh, it was a Hammond B3 um, because, of course, I couldn't afford one. And so I had a Hammond M3, which was the cheaper version, but it didn't sound like a B3. And I finally was able to buy my B3 when I was about 29 or so. It was just wow. like what Scott said. I had saved up and saved up, and I finally was able to do it all at once. And I got one that was custom built directly into a road case so that it was, I was able to use it for gigs. And then I carried it around with me for like the next six or seven years playing gigs, you know, at least once a week on it. Playing gigs in the United States because you cannot, mm-hmm. you cannot tour in Europe with, with a Hammond. American Hammond. No Believe way. Me. Because the power, and the reason viewers is because it is frequent, the frequency is dependent on the 60 cycle power. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me. And I found out the hard way. <laughs> so let me just tell you, you that. You brought a Hammond to Europe? No, I didn't. The, the act that I was with brought a Hammond over there back in the day. And that's when they found out you can't do it. It's just, it won't be in town. Um, Rob, how about you? What were you jonesing for back in the day? I've had a few, but I think the first one was probably the Prophet T8. Wow. That was an amazing synth. And I never ended up getting one, but uh, that was just, it was a great synth. Wow. And, it's, and the keyboard from it had such a great action that that ended up becoming the keyboard for the Synclavier. Right. But yeah, the Prophet T8, I always wanted one. And 
could never make it happen. And actually, the the Oasis uh, years later was the same thing, and it was just way too expensive. So this one, I actually bought this uh, from a clearance. I happened to go into Guitar Center, and they had it like sitting on its side. And so I actually got it way cheaper than what they used to cost because... I was jonesing for jonesing for one for a long time because it was like the ultimate spaceship and it did everything, but I couldn't justify the money. I couldn't afford it. So I waited an extra, I don't know, I probably waited three or four years, but then I got it for like half. I know you got a crazy deal on yours, brother. I Rob, you did you spend story. a lot of time diving into it and really learning the, the ins and outs of it? Yeah, and it has, I mean, the instruction manual is like an inch yeah. thick and it's it's really, 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 really deep. Um. Yeah, the the main thing with the Oasis was always trying to figure out how to get it to get it to stop doing stuff. Like you'd call up a patch, and all of a sudden there are like fifteen songs playing at the same time, and like there's <laughs> so much stuff going on. It, I'll tell you what, it's one of the best looking keyboards from uh, from a keyboard player. When you look at it with the screen and the pads and everything, oh, it looks cool. I mean, it was definitely the least practical keyboard for live. Like you would never want to. No. Oh, oh my gosh. Could you imagine? First thing that's going to go on that is going to be the screen from all this. No, I was very happy that Stevie never fell in love with these. He was using Yamahas that were a lot lighter. Yeah. But no, it was just, it was just like the ultimate synth and it, it still is. I mean, I've forgotten a lot about it, but it's still great. That's cool. Brandon, what about you? What, what were you jonesing for? Like last there, you year? Know, there was no jonesing for me back in the day for synths. <laughs> I was, uh, you know, I got into this later and I, I was all soft synths to begin with. So my jonesing has been recently. <laughs> I sort of take, where all of you guys have been analog synths and then, you know, got into all the software stuff. It's like, I'm going the opposite way. So well, what was a, Tell me a software that you were jonesing for. I mean, when you first started, I'm sure you couldn't. Right after well, the software back in the day was, you know, I don't know, whenever Omnisphere came out, that thing looked so mm-hmm. awesome. And finally, I still use that thing all the time. So. Oh, yeah. It's great. That's great. great one, yeah. The trick with all that software is when you were Jones for what you were actually jonesing for was the computer that was powerful enough to actually play it. Like, <laughs> right. like the, Artoria, the Artoria plugins were amazing. You know, their CS80 and actually I did Jones for CS80 too. But their, their CS80 and their, their Jupiters and all that stuff were great, but they would eat up the entire computer processing power. So you could buy the plugin, but actually the real expense was getting the good computer. <laughs> Hey, Scott, were you uh, judging for anything? We already know about your Jupiter. Anything else? No, you know know what? For me, I I took a different approach to it all in that I always heard, because I was doing a lot of programming synthesizers for Mike Lang and Chris Page and a lot of session players around town before I started on the sound effects side. So for me, actually, my favorite combo, because it's not really a, a synth, but it was always the combos for me, and I ended up picking them up. So, and I'll explain what I'm thinking. So, I liked the DX7 for the percussion, the things that had mm. a little bit of bite to it. Like the marimba sounds, the pitch percussion sounds? Clavinet, marimba, anything that did that. Then I liked a Korg wave station mm. on top of that to give that a little bit. Then combine that with an Oberheim. And then combine it with a, uh, the Roland I had. I have a lot of Rolands. But whether it's an 8P, a 3P, or a 990, a GX9, you know, and you stack that together. So when you play one sound, you're hearing all of it. And each one took a different approach because you had the fat phase of the Oberheims. You had the bite. It's kind of like food, you know? You take the bite of the DX7 and that typical Roland brass sound that everybody got sick of. But all of a sudden you would hit it. And this giant, because I'm a tonal guy. It was like an um, orchestra or something, wasn't yeah. it? It was. It was. And that's so when I was doing stuff. And believe it or not, as a guitar player, I got into all these bands. We were doing the Roxy and all that. And I was the keyboard player because I wasn't playing piano. I was playing changes on these giant synths. So I had my little Rick Wakeman look going on. And I was playing all these lush, fat, you know, I, and I kept wanting, I guess the Jones one, I wanted Taurus pedals. That's oh. cool. But I, had uh, that fat, and then the whole room just, you know, on the downbeat just rocks. <laughs> and you're like, oh. That's, Back in my progressive awesome. rock days, the bass player had Taurus pedals. And he'd be playing and playing, you know, up here on the string like, bass. Da, 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 da. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> it was you, so great. You know, 
the Taurus pedals is an example of a sound that still holds. I mean, you, you can't you can't replicate that. I mean, that's it's such a unique sound, especially. And if you're in a big concert hall and you've got oh, yeah. sub speakers, yeah. you hit those low notes, and no record does it. The whole room just moves, and it's just a cool feeling. <laughs> And right. we'll point out that Rob's favorite band, uh, Getty Lee, used Taurus pedals a lot. That's right. <laughs> Which is why I'm such a huge fan. <laughs> hey, so I have two uh, keyboards that I, I was jonesing for. And uh, one of them, Scott, you mentioned, was the, uh, was the Wave Station. When I saw that, that to me. Still have mine. Yeah. The whole vector synth. And I ended up getting it. And I, I got to play it because when I was on tour with Natalie Cole back in the day, her keyboard player, um, played a wave station. So I got to play it, you know, as I was setting up and, you know, mic checking and testing (laughs) a fun stage. Um, And then the other one uh, was the Karma keyboard, which which, uh, I I got a version of it when I got my M3 because it had Karma built in. But Mm -hmm. the Karma keyboard for me was like, when I saw that come out, yep. Is. Yeah, with the with the appeggiator on it, that, yeah. that smart appeggiator, and yeah. with the smart karma uh, arranger that did all those uh, you know all those different arrangements that they it would do it on its own and stuff like that. It was it was pretty amazing, but it just actually sounded cool, and some of the bass stuff was really good. And uh, but later on, they incorporated that into some of their other keyboards, and the uh, and the M3 was one. And they also Korg did that. Remember the Z1? I don't know if you guys remember the, oh, yeah. the Korg Z1. Z1. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah, we went to try keyboards, you know, go to, <laughs> go to Rob's studio and like, yeah, I see that. I like, Cork was doing some really great stuff back in that time. I mean, they were doing all kinds yeah. of cool stuff. Cork was doing great stuff and clients were paying a lot for music. So it was a beautiful combination. <laughs> I could go out and buy the toys and justify uh, justify the toys for the projects. But uh, yeah, but it's like they were, I think, I don't know. I, I, you know, some of the manufacturers nowadays, you just don't see those kind of swings that they were doing back in the day, you know, from, from that, to the M1, the Oasis and all the other stuff. It's, it's a lot harder to get people to pay that kind of money for a synth anymore. I mean, the plugins have gotten so good. That's yeah. true. The software is so good that you can't, I mean, they used to come out routinely. This synth is a grand, it's two grand, it's three grand, it's two grand. Like, and the stores would have new ones constantly. I mean, they that the market wouldn't sustain that now. I don't know though. You look at the hydrosynth, man, and that sucker. I was is gonna say such that's an amazing. new one that I want. That hydrosynth is great. But, yeah, it's, but at a, price, it's, it's at a cheaper price point than the stuff absolutely. that Rob was talking yes. about. Yeah. It's ten times better and a tenth as expensive as some of these things. Like it, it's yeah. a perfect Yeah, that, yeah. Go ahead. No, I, what I was going to no, say... Brandon, Brandon had a good hardware Jones for the Hydrosynth, so he actually that, has... That was my, my current day Jones, yep. Yeah. <laughs> part, of, part of the problem, I think, um, was that there we had analog synths, and then there was FM, and then there was the Romplers. And I think it feels like technology really sort of ground to a standstill with a lot of the Rompler keyboards for oh, a long time. 100%. And then I was like, well, who cares? Because I have something that sounds good enough to just like that, so why should I buy this thing instead? No, that's so true. But then what ended up happening was that software started doing things better than the romplers without a doubt like when i remember when atmosphere came out when Mm -hmm. spectrosonics first of all spectrosonics was doing some really great stuff with the samplers remember the roland um the roland s60 sampler like the the single space that was like at that time it was the best sounding sampler it just sounded great the 760 right the 760 yeah yeah yeah, yeah, the one, the one that had single space and then you could hook up a video monitor to it. Yeah, the um, seven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It, that just, was the bread and butter and, and the Spectrosonic sounds were by far the best sounds for it. They were so fantastic. And they, they, the fact that you could have a monitor playing um, and you can monitor the samples as a keyboard tech, I remember like when I was with Teddy Riley, we had a couple and it was amazing because not only could I monitor what was going on, I kind of used it as a MIDI analyzer because I knew everything was working if it, if it made it all the way down. Same with Martin. When I went on tour with him all those years ago, that was the exact same thing. I, I, I put up a monitor on it and I could monitor all the, um, the samples and I knew everything was hitting. And I also knew when things weren't hitting, like if he dropped the course or something, you could expect to see activity and then you, you, know, you had to go in there and the obvious thing is now that he's out of sync, you got to turn off 
the background vocals <laughs> so that they don't come in the wrong spot. But yeah, that was, they're right. The 760 was just, that was an amazing, amazing, amazing sampler. But what happened was you saw all this software stuff like Atmosphere. When Atmosphere first came out, that was such a game-changing plugin on, on a really big level, right? I mean, it sounded gorgeous. Some of the layers and some of the texturing and then what you could do with it was just amazing. And the fact that Omnisphere, like, how long has Omnisphere been out for? At least a decade. At least 10 years, right? And there's, oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know if they've done anything on top of it. And it's still so relevant they're they're keeping it up and the, you know just all the programming that you can do on it just the yeah, fact well, that you it's can, omnisphere 2 now has been around for several years yeah but just the, the same idea yeah same idea and the fact that you know with the with the programmable lfos and things like that like that's like i, I was just blown away actually brandon you showed me some stuff on Omnisphere, I remember when I used to visit you in your bay back like, in the like, trailer park days yeah. yeah you're like look at this and i'm like how did you do that <laughs> Anyhow, the only problem That's with pretty amazing. a lot of that software is if you use it as much as a lot of people do, everything starts to get a sameness to it after a while, even if the actual sounds are kind of different, just the sound generation is similar. And so like Atmosphere definitely got used way more than it should have. Like there was a while on the radio when everything sounded like it was using the same patches. And Omnisphere has a lot more sounds, but it's still, if you use it too much, then all your stuff kind of sounds yeah. Which the good thing about like Atmosphere 2 is the programmability though. You can really tweak and do some really cool things to kind of make it your own, but you're hundred percent. I think sometimes people get lazy and it seems like not only is it the same patches, it's like the first, like the same, like the first 20, <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? Well, it's, it's, like, also, it's also the same synth generation engine. Like if you have Omnisphere put out a Moog lead sound and then you actually go to a Moog and put out a Moog lead sound and actually adjust it. So it's pretty much, you know, as close to the same sound as possible, they're still going to sound really, really different. The way the Moog lays in the track and cuts through everything else, it's just going to be different. Uh, and it's, it's hard to say scientifically why that is, but you feel it. I mean, it's not even hard to tell the difference. No, I, I a hundred percent agree. When, um, when Martin got his, his, uh, Moog in, I immediately, you could just tell that, that, that low end, you just, it was just better. It's bigger, better, fuller, rounder. It you just, have actual circuits heating up and right. yeah. going yeah. close. Uh, I'd like to jump in on a, I'd like to tangentialize just for a minute on the same point, since we're talking about vintage synthesizers and vintage gear. Um, of all of my equipment, let's see, my Oberheim Matrix 12. Oh, that's right. It's broken. It's in the shop. Oh, wait. There, then there's my Radio Shack MG1. Ah, that's broken. It's in the shop. Then there's my Mellotron. Oh, that hasn't worked for years, and I barely can think about trying to get in there fix it. My ARP string ensemble, broken. I just tried replacing the power supply, and it's still not working. So one thing that people have to remember, when you buy stuff that's electronics that's 30 years old, you better be ready for a lot of that, right, gentlemen? They should build that into the plug-in. They should have, like, every year, like, the, the power supply. You hear the power supply dying, but then all you have to do is go, like, fix it, and it fixes it. That makes the vintage sense. Because when they used to break, you'd have to take them to a qualified guy. And those qualified guys were always really, really busy. So it would sit on a shelf for two months unless you bribed them to move you to the top of the shelf so they'd fix your synth fast. Uh, that was the definitely the dark side of the synth world. Because as soon as something went wrong, you were really kind of screwed. Oh, yeah. And if you were touring with uh, an act that relied on keyboard, you, know, you, you had two or three of your main axes because... Okay you were going to break a key, something was going to go wrong. And, and that, that's the worst feeling in the world when you're like, key's broken. And it's not like a, you know, a lower C, it's like right in the middle. You know, it's like a, like a, uh, not a C key, because it was never the obvious one, but it was like a G or a D or something like that always ended up um, breaking. So... Well, and That's some funny. of the ICs that were a dollar to repair something in the 80s are now either unobtainium or like $65 for, you know, the IC because they haven't been made in so long. They were these specialized yeah. things. That's, that's crazy. Hey, before we move on, actually, I just thought of something. And I, I looked at my notes and I forgot I wanted to mention this because I, I just want your input on this. This is totally, it's sound related in a, in a backhanded way. But um, so two weeks ago, I worked a shoot. And, uh, and I lost 
my really great headphones, my Sony headphones, right? And these are the Sony WH-1000. They're like 350 bucks. They're really great. I'm really super particular. It's, they're not these. I'm really super particular about headphones. Like that's my thing. Like I am more particular in headphones probably than even my speakers because I, I wear headphones so, so much. So you, you have to be comfortable and then you have to, they have to sound good. Anyway, I lost it. I couldn't find it. And I still haven't found it. That's why I'm wearing these. <laughs> but I was so bummed out. And I wanted to ask you guys, what was the last thing you lost? Like, synth-wise, gear-wise, anything. What was the last thing that you lost? Anybody have any, any, any uh, things they want to share? Any stories they want to share on the road? Um, Did you lose an iLock? Yeah. Oh, oh, bummer, oh, bummer. That oh, is no. painful. That is maximum pain per ounce. Oh. <laughs> How did you lose that? Was it like transferring from I one computer? I don't know. I sort of went, why, why can't I authorize the sound? Oh, it's looking. No, the Because I, I have like four eye locks and I'm like, I have three eye locks. Where's the fourth one? Oh. Four of the room apart. Tore everything apart. The funny part was, couldn't find it. Had to go back to the manufacturers and beg to get new authorizations. A year later, I found it. Oh. <laughs> but they turned it off. All right. So it was a dead eye lock. Oh, man, that's crazy. How about you, Nick? Have you, have you lost any gear? Oh, Sure. You know, I've, uh, yes, as a matter of fact, one thing, one thing I recall. So remember I was talking about that, that Hammond that we would uh, carry around. Well, it, because of the fact that we took off most of the rest of it, uh, you know, the bottom of it, it didn't have pedals. It was only a mere 225 pounds <laughs> to carry around. And so uh, I bought a refrigerator dolly for it. And this was back when I didn't have any money. And, you know, I was just a starving musician. And so I had this, this refrigerator dolly and it went with me from gig to gig to gig to be able to move the Hammond. And then, you know how it is, it's two in the morning and everybody's tired and everyone just wants to load the stuff onto the truck and go home. And so I did. And we got to the other end and it's like, where's the refrigerator dolly? <laughs> Who's going to help me carry this out at 4.30 a.m. because the dolly is gone. That was a very sad loss right there. Oh, my goodness. How about you, Brandon? Have you lost anything, any gear? Not gear that I can think of. I, I didn't do much live touring or anything. But uh, similar to Scott, I didn't lose an iLock, but one went bad on me. And this, oh. was, this was an iLock one. This is before I had... They may have introduced that like protection plan, but I didn't have it yet. And that was a, that was a nightmare. <laughs> That's crazy. Rob, how about you? I haven't had uh, too much bad luck there. I do somewhere in my studio is an iLock that has the Oxford EQ on it. And that's the only <laughs> thing on that iLock and I can't find it. And I know as soon as I would go buy the EQ again, I'd find it. so I refuse to buy the EQ again, but I know it's here someplace and I'll probably find it 50 years when I dismantle the place. Um, but the only thing I ever really lost that really upset me, I didn't lose it. A, a maid at a hotel in New York at the hotel where I always used to stay when I would go to New York threw out a bag that had a backup drive in it, uh, like a hard drive with no. a ton of stuff. Luckily, it was true. I mean, and I was freaking out. I had them going through the trash. I had them climbing through the dumpster behind the hotel and everything, and they couldn't find it. And she insisted she hadn't done it, but then they had on video, like the exact bag, you know, sitting next to the elevator where it was thrown out. But uh, luckily, it turned out to truly be a backup. So it was a lot of work, but I was able to find all the stuff that it was a backup of. Once I got back to LA, I didn't have it in New York with me. But so that was, that was the biggest feeling of, oh no, what am I going to do? Uh, <laughs> that was frustrating. And it was can, like a two terabyte drive that was full. I, I can imagine. And you know what's frustrating about me losing these headphones? Because they're like my golden headphones that I love. This is the second pair of headphones that I've lost. I, I, left, I left another set on the train between Washington, uh, between Baltimore and New York. <laughs> I, I was I was traveling with a bunch of gear, and the gear made it off, but the headphones never made it off. Well, it's pretty clear your headphones are someplace sitting on Nick's refrigerator dolly. 
<laughs> with us. <laughs> but you know what? I was telling, I was talking to a friend of mine. We were talking about losing things, and he said, "Well, I bet when you toured, you you probably lost a lot of things." And actually, that's not true. When you when I toured. And Rob can attest to this too. When you tour, you have a process that you go through. So you know everything that comes in, everything that goes out. Like, you know, every little piece of gear, because it's almost like a dance. You go in, you take off your lids, you go in, you plug this and plug this and plug, you know, it's, it's a routine. So you know, if anything breaks that routine that you had left something behind. But I, I actually, I, I am very much a, a routine person like that. And I just thought of another incident. I was in Austin once where I was producing a band and we did a gig and I'd been up for days straight and I was exhausted. And normally I wasn't the one who would carry the main computer around, which had all the music. And it was a really expensive computer with a bunch of accessories in a great case. And I got in an Uber and put it in the back of the Uber. And when I got out, I forgot that I was in charge of the computer. And so I left it in the Uber and I went in, I went to sleep and I didn't realize till the morning oh no, I left the computer in the Uber last night. So it's like 12 hours later. Luckily, you know, I freaked out. I, I started e emailing Uber and everything else and they found the driver and, and the computer was still in his trunk and he brought it to me. But that was the most freaked out I have ever been for like a few hours until it showed. <laughs> Luckily, I had a very honest Uber driver. Oh gosh. You're talking about, Mike, you're talking about going live. I had this uh, crazy incident. So I was a, a student at Berkeley College, and I was because uh, I'd done so much live sound bef you know, between school, uh, between being on tour and at Disney. So okay, anyway, so um, I'm helping them set up. I forgot who the artist was. Big concert, four semis, the whole bit. So okay, so great, we're setting it all up, and the guy goes, "Hey, you know what? I need another wedge monitor. Can you go get me one?" I said, "No problem." So I run out into the back. I'm looking around, and I, I said, I, I can't find the wedge monitors. And he goes, it's in truck two. And I said, I, I, I can't find the way. So he's kind of giving me that look of like, you know, I, I can't, you know, I'm not sure where any of this is. So he's giving me that kid look of like, okay, you're a kid. I'm just going to have to do it for you. And then I said, no, no, no. So I go in. I said, I, I don't see the truck. And he goes, what do you mean you don't see the truck? So he runs in the back, and now there's three semis with an open slot. Somebody had gone in, started the truck, and drove off. And the tr and the sound truck was gone. No. And, and you see the guy just sitting there just staring at this empty place where the semi was. Like, I have no clue what to say. There's no cell phones at the time. And I'm like... Where's the truck? And he goes, and then we were asking someone, says, oh, I saw this guy jump into the truck, and then he just, I just thought it was you. I just drove it off. Wow. So they lost a semi full of audio. Wow. Was it ever found? Not a clue. Wow. That's they, not had to, they had to make a lot of very quick phone calls and rent stuff to, fi to finish the show. Right. So, yeah, that was, that was a lot of energy there. When I, when I used to travel with studio, that's why I used to carry all, all the gear I needed for the show. I used to carry it around like the nuclear codes. Like I, would, <laughs> I never trusted it to be in a truck. No, it's, you know what? I was the same way. I, I would always keep a set of data, all the patches, everything on me um, because you just never know if something like that happens, especially the vocal samples. That was the biggest thing. You know, whatever yeah. act you're working with, like you cannot. There's no yeah, there's no substitute. And actually, you know, you'd be surprised how often small touring bands get their gear ripped off. You used to really? oh, sure. that all the time, wow. all the time. Even when I was touring, but even now, you still see it. Like, hey, be on the lookout. Such and such band was touring and somebody broke into their van and did this and stole that and did that. Well, think about it because you've got a little U-Haul, right? Uh -huh. If you're a really small band, you've got a U-Haul trailer. You have to sleep. Yep. So you put the trailer, even if you back it up against the wall and then you go to bed, somebody wants to, they can break into that thing. And, you know, if they're, if they're, wow. if they're focused enough to do something like that, when you're that tired at the end of a show, the last thing you want to do is haul all of that gear into your hotel room. hundred percent. And, and that's actually one of the good things about technology nowadays is like um, programs like main stage, things like that, where you, you have it all right there on your laptop and you just, 
bring your laptop and it has all your stuff. At least you can take your laptop with you and your keys can stay, you know, in the truck. And let's face it, it's simpler, easier to replace a, uh, a controller, you know, than the actual patches that are in whatever keyboard it is. So yeah, it's, it's kind of crazy. Well, you know what? I feel better about uh, losing my headphones. <laughs> <laughs> Because you know what? I'm going to go buy the exact same pair again because I, I love those headphones. You know what? Check out these. What are they? There's the blue Mophies. And, um, okay. And um, I have a lot of headphones. They're probably on like six. And I'm not really a headphone guy, but uh, a friend turned me on to these. They have such amazing low end, but not like extra low end. They're not like Beats. They sound the equivalent of my barefoots in headphones. And somebody said, I mix in these because I want it to sound like speakers. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, sure. Then the only thing is they're a little tight to get that low end. Right. But I, when I was in uh, finishing Mrs. America in quarantine, um, that's what I was using. Because I knew they sounded like my barefoots. All right, I'll have to take a look at them. Because now if there's a time for me to, to change my headphones, it's, it's going to be now. So I'm open. I'm open for suggestions. Yeah, and I've got the Sony 800s, you know, the open ears that are beautiful. But these just sound like speakers. And what do they run for? Are they like three, 400 bucks? Yeah, the Mofus aren't that much. All right. So that's kind of in the price range. Although I will say I, I like the noise canceling on the Sonys. The Sony's noise canceling was the best that there was. But... I mean, I don't anticipate getting on an airplane anytime soon. <laughs> but those are really good. Like, you know, a lot of the, the noise canceling yeah. are great for airplanes. So I've got my noise canceling for when I travel and just want to chill. Yeah, I, I just take one set and I just fell in love with the Sony. I fell in love with yeah. this, that Sony sound. And, and it doesn't hype, but it sounds good. I mean, there is a little bit of hype. If you turn the mega bass and get all that, but I don't, I don't like, you know, you could just. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. That. Yeah, I know which ones you're talking about. The, but, I use um, them on my TV in the kitchen. Yeah, but they're they like, big, like they're blue and red, and they're, well, no, they're, they're, they're not wireless that, or, or not. They come in black or gold, and I had the gold ones because they looked oh, okay. cool. But they're uh, and they they're Bluetooth, and you can also it, it's, I don't want to talk about it anymore. I'm just getting depressed. <laughs> Let's have these on. Oh. All right, let's move forward. Uh, you know, we're talking about sound. One thing I wanted to open up and I wanted to talk to you guys about um, and just get your opinion. So I've been watching a ton of Netflix. Like I've just been watching a ton of, I can't watch regular TV because I just don't want to watch regular TV right now. So I've been watching Netflix, a bunch of films, things like that. And um, it's amazing how sound design kind of ebbs and flows and goes through these certain things, you know, like there was a, a while there where the chatter, and I think it started with Transformers where you have a lot of those chattering sound. Oh, the chittering. Exactly. Right. That was right. Scott, that was about Transformery. That's about when they started doing that kind of stuff. Yeah. She's in a tremulation a lot. You know, I mean, you hear it in the, the pod racer. Yeah. I mean, you hear it all over the place that, that, yeah. And you kind of see these trends that are kind of going in and out. And, um, and some of me and Brandon had this, uh, had this conversation and it's like, can you oversound design? <laughs> is there a such thing as just going overboard on, on And sound? my first answer was no. <laughs> yeah, no Give me more sound design. <laughs> and I'm like, you absolutely can, you know, because that movie we just talked about, Transformers, I thought was so over the top with their audio. Like way over the top with like every little geez. But it's Transformers. I mean No, I, I understand. But if you if you watch all the movies, they they actually got better by doing less towards some of the some of the ends back in that time they were voicing every single little stinking but did you see that is it net i think it was on netflix the michael bay over the top action thing where every second was a michael bay moment (laughs) to the point of like it looked like a visual effects demo I, i mean i watched it and i'm just sitting there going get to the story and, and that's where, like, for me, I love. I'm, I'm a sound designer. Yo, I actually, you you sound designed one of my favorite films, which was because I love when you talk about, it, which is American Beauty. When oh yeah, the, like, and that was the total 
to me, that was like, when I talk to people about sound design and I'm just going to pump you up for a second, I tell people like, you know, you can go, yeah, you can go with the Star Wars and that kind of stuff. But if you listen to the drama, something like, you know, American Beauty, where the sound design is so elegant and so good that you don't realize that it's, there's even sound, like it, it just seems so natural. And there's a lot of movies that, you know, that, that, can play in that way but there's also some movies where you know if you're doing a drama and and they just go overboard on the foley sure. like way overboard on the foley yeah i was i was gonna try i don't think it's working i was gonna try called up a marimba sound i was gonna give you a an american beauty tribute but oh are you guys hearing it or no oh no oh bummer that was uh the american beauty sound design and the musical score together were just Two of my favorite things. You know, you know what? It says you, even when I got the gig, because it's funny that you say that, because when I interviewed with Sam, he looked at me, looked at my credits, and he's like, you're an odd choice to be in front of me because I think I just finished Inspector Gadget. And I'm just doing lots of big, noisy things. And I could see, because he's a Broadway guy, and I could see him like, Ugh. So I read the script. I really loved it. And I, I sold him on a concept of minimalism. And I said, look, you think of me as a heavy metal guy, sound designer, but I can really do jazz. And I said, I had this whole concept of minimalism and negative space and using silence creative, this whole concept that I pitched to him. And then he's like, wow. Then I got back in my car and 10 minutes later, I got the gig. Um, but so I think for me, and, and the same thing with music. And, and, you know, when we went to Berkeley, I was a guitar player. So it was like all the Berkeley guitar players will play you every single note they've ever learned as fast as they can, as the joke was. But as you get older and you get more mature in your music, your sound design, and creating stories with sound, you, you know, you start knowing what not to do and just trying to find, I just need this. It's all it needs. Yeah. And I need that. And knowing... And the reason why I said it's jazz because jazz trades off music. Somebody plays something and then somebody answers that, you know, call and response. And the great guys just know when to, to chill and when to, to, to do just what's needed, whether it's three notes or a lot of notes. And I think it's the same thing with creating soundtracks, knowing when to, and composers especially, I don't need to hear everything you've ever learned or everything you've ever wanted to, to to write. What you need is to look at the scene, look at the actors, and find out how to complement it and add to it, either with a lot. Um, you know, we, we did, uh, just, with Glory, it was the other way, we had James Horner. And we had these brand new actors uh, named Denzel Washington and Morgan Freeman, who nobody knew. These guys start doing monologues that just, played it in a rough track and we were like blown away we'd never seen these guys do that thing and then you got Matthew Broderick whose mustache is this his Boston accents all over the place right and we're sitting there going what a waste oh my god the show is so out of balance because you got these amazing amazing actors and Matthew's you know he, he's Matthew and he couldn't keep up so we were sitting there going, I, I, the, the film's going to go. Pfft. And then James Horner grabbed the Harlem Boys Choir and everything. He went, dear mother. Oh, da, da, yeah, yeah. And, then, and he did this whole beautiful score that was making you cry every time Matthew spoke. No, and that's how he balanced out each of the actors' performances. It was that was fat. That was another. That's actually another one of my favorite movies. So yes, that was fantastic. It sounds good. It was good. Hey, believe it or not, we're gonna have to start wrapping this up, man. That went fast. That went quick. But we can't not hear uh, a little something from come on, Rob, the man himself. Oh, I'm not sure if it's actually working or not. It's the red button. I, I heard you when you were when you were. Uh, you did. I think the problem is you guys may be hearing me, and I may not. Be. Let me see. Crack your headphones a little bit and see if you can hear that. There we go. Does it sound phasey and weird though, or does it sound okay? I mean, it sounds it, distorted. It sounds it way sounds over modulated. As good as it does in Zoom. It sounds like Zoom. And <laughs> now we can't hear you because you're not behind your microphone. Right, but we're going to do one little experiment. And this will... 
This will probably make it sound better. Yes. Oh, wait, except it's still too hot. So that sounds better, right? Yes. Yeah, the only problem is I'm not hearing it. <laughs> so I'm playing, uh, that's not playing blind. I guess that's playing deaf because <laughs> we'll work it out for next week. Something about uh, Zoom and trying to send audio and hear it at the same time. That's okay. Really quick because we got like a minute. Uh, g- give me a little, give us a little Stevie. Um, I'm not hearing myself. Oh, well, I thought. <laughs> I know. You mean, let's see if this is even working. And then the trick with the karma, with the karma engine, is you got to tell it to not play itself. (laughs) (laughs) Is that sounding distorted or is that sounding clean? It's Zoom. So let's just put it that way. Yeah. It's cleaner. It's a cleaner version. Yeah, the problem is now I'm hearing myself, but with a huge delay. I think we'll use this as a tease for next time, and we'll figure. <laughs> All right, we're gonna. I'm gonna hold you to that. Next time we get to hear Rob do his little Stevie thing. That's fine. The keyboard's not going anywhere. It's way too heavy. <laughs> all right, hey guys, this has been kind of fun, even though it was kind of all over the place. It was. It's kind of a fun conversation all over the place. Uh, before we uh, wrap it up, uh, is anybody working on anything they want to talk about? Brandon, you working on anything? Still doing your sound effects library? Yeah, cranking out a new, I uh, just released a, uh, a music collection um, a few weeks ago, and I'm cranking out a new um, sound design collection right now. So. And, right. Uh, and if people want to check it out, why don't you plug your URL? Oh, yeah, my company's called Secret Weapon Sound, so it's secretweaponsound.com. And let me just tell you, his stuff is fantastic because I steal it all the time. But no, <laughs> no, his stuff is just amazing. It's really good. I always get that call. Brandon, I'm... <laughs> I'm using your your stuff in one of my productions. Fine, go ahead. I don't care. That's because most of the good stuff I'm working on, I'm not getting paid for. So it's like, you know, you're helping out good causes. Um, uh, Nick, really quick, are you uh, working on anything? Uh, yeah, I'm starting. Uh, I mean, aside from the Disney stuff that I'm always doing, I'm starting a new collaboration, doing some ambient work uh, with a friend, which is a lot of fun. And in fact, to that end, I have something here to show you. This is a box that I just 3D printed with Brian Eno's oblique strategy cards inside of it that I uh, printed out also because I wanted them to be able to kickstart um, my, my, my creativity there. So I'm going to read one, and this will be our, our, our Brian Eno note for, uh, for oh, this week. Are fantastic. you Fantastic, yeah. Here it is. Don't be frightened of cliches. Nice. Boy, I am not frightened of that at all. <laughs> Okay, really quick, we got a minute. Scott, how about you? You working on anything? You want to try to think uh, what I could talk about? So uh, we finished, which we'd been working on for over a year, Valorant for Riot. Um, nice, nice. And we did Legends of Munterra with Riot. That's great. And the other thing I could say is we just got finished working on, I think I can say it now, uh, Crash Bandicoot. Oh, nice. Mm, fun. So we had a nice little, I couldn't say it's anything. It's a good run. Just a nice little run, and, and now we got a whole new batch. Uh, fantastic. Okay, Rob, really quick. How about you? You working on anything you talk about? Got nothing. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what about you, Mike? Okay. Uh, you know what? I'm just in the middle of editing, man. I've, I've got editing up the wazoo on a bunch of different things for a couple different clients, which is great. Anytime you can, you know, get gigs in this crazy economy, it's crazy. I, I was, it's like touring. When you have the gig, you're always thinking of the next gig, right? You're never like satisfied with the gig that you're doing now. You're like doing your gig, but you're always like, okay, what's going to be the next gig? What's going to be the next gig? So that's where I'm at. I'm working on, on stuff and finishing up a couple of really fun pieces. The Audio Nowcast Spaces uh, 70 Minute Extraordinaire is turning out to be really funny and really fun. That'll come out probably in a couple of weeks. And that's about it. Well, guys, this has been fun. And uh, if you have any comments or questions, you can reach us at audio at nowcastnetwork.com. That's audio at nowcastnetwork.com. And from myself and all the guys, take care, be safe, and we'll see you next time. Stay Bye. feet away, Joanne. Thanks for listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and Wireworld Pro Audio. 
The Audio Nowcast is hosted by Mike Rodriguez and features a panel with Rob Arbitier, Bobby Osinski, Scott Gershon, Nick Peck, Diego Stucco, Brandon Birdside, Martin Page, Bobby Summerfield, and maybe a guest or two. We'll see you next time.